0: What a privilege to look at the Gospels. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to approach the words of Jesus again, um, seeing how he interacted with people, the great love that he had, and the truth that he spoke. May our hearts be open, our attention focused on the truths here this morning. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Well, this is a pretty familiar story, the story of the rich young ruler. It's actually one of the most interesting encounters in the Gospels. Uh, it's, it's important today because, I don't mean just today today, I mean kind of generally today because it really shakes up a lot of modern um, evangelistic methods and ideas You know, like a lot of brand new Christians, I shared Christ with just anybody who would listen when I came to the Lord, and some people who would not listen, but uh, it was kind of like my primary purpose in life was to share Jesus. I wanted to tell everybody that they could know the joy of knowing Christ in their life and know the salvation that he brings, and I wanted to, everyone to honor the true and living God, and that's the way life should be, and I, I still want that, but it, it, what strikes me about those days, which was like four decades ago, um, was how I was taught to evangelize. So, you know, you just kind of do it when you're new, and then you get opportunities to go to classes, and so I took classes on evangelism, and they're pretty much about formulas, you know, the classes, like, very structured, and you say this, and you do that, and you say this, and they say that, you say this kind of thing. And I I, I learned pretty quick that that doesn't always work, I mean, even just in terms of communication, in terms of little formulas, like everybody's different and they're all in a different place and it really helps to get to know people and kind of figure out where they're coming from to be able to share with them. And I, in fact, I felt pretty early on that what I taught was more like, kind of like what a salesman does, you know? You're sort of trying to manipulate people into making a decision. That's, that's what salesmen do. And that's not what you do when you share the gospel. I actually was taught in a class one time. Um, how did he put it? It's like, You know, you have a a gospel tract, and and how you hold the tract, like, mattered a lot. It was like, you don't hold it so far that they can take it easily. You hold it here, so they have to reach out. And that's a salesman thing, right? They they are doing an act which brings it to them, and that's psychologically conditioning under. I don't think Jesus did that. (laughs) I don't think he gave out tracts, for one thing, but the Holy Spirit and the grace of God acting on a human heart are not dependent on how you hold a tract or the certain formula you use to talk to somebody. Uh, and I'm sure I've told this story many times before here, but um, you know, when I was a young Christian also, it, my wife and, well, I worked with Christian jail workers. Our first date was in a juvenile prison. That's how she got involved. <laughs> That's a great way to win a girl's heart, guys. <laughs> Take them to jail on your first, your first day. But the chaplain had us cancel our Bible study one time. We used to go six times a month to uh, out to these juvenile prison camps out, in, uh, out by the ocean there. And uh, they had a, a special speaker come, so they canceled our Bible study, and, which was usually about 10 guys. And uh, the special speaker was like really dynamic. He had this incredible conversion experience in prison and this incredible story. And so about half the camp came in. I mean, there were like 60 young men there. And, he told this really dramatic story, and that the end he gave kind of an invitation, and and he wanted them to come forward. They all got a, every single young man got up and came forward and prayed the sinner's prayer with this guy because it was such an um, emotional, effective uh, thing. And and uh, you know the the counselors, of course, were all like, they, all these guys get up and move forward. They're like, they all panicked for a little bit there, but um, everything was fine. But afterwards, the evangelist, we were just kind of going back through what happened, and he, he said, praise God, 60 souls were saved today. And I'm thinking, no. Not 60. And I didn't say that, but um, the next week, instead of 10, maybe we had 12. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it was clearly an emotional response to a very dramatic thing. And, and maybe some people did get saved there, but not 60. I'm sure most of those kids went right out back and uh, murdered people. But, um, <laughs> What were they responding to? I mean, they were responding to a method, a technique. Okay, rob people. <laughs> Listen, I followed up on those kids. They didn't all come out okay. <laughs> I mean, it really sounds impressive, but the way evangelism is done many times is, um, it's actually kind of new, this whole idea of the sinner's prayer and that kind of thing. And Christians haven't done that all these 2000 years, um, it's it's sort of a a new thing. It's not inherently wrong, it just wasn't done before that, and um, nobody would worry about setting a mood or anything like that, and that's all fairly new stuff. There, There wasn't a technique so much as just speaking the truth and giving as much information and proclaiming the glory of Christ to people. I mean, that's what people did. And I guess what is shocking about Matthew 19 is that according to all these methodologies that you're kind of taught in evangelism class, Jesus does it completely wrong. I mean, I, that's, that's what I come to this. That's what I notice. I mean, he's, he's blowing it. He, he even lets this very eager disciple slip away. And I'm like, what are you doing? You know, you're doing it wrong, man. So... Uh, The circumstances are like perfect. So when I was my young self, if a guy walked up to me and said, teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? I've got your answer. I would would give it to him and he'd pray the prayer and he'd be be in the church. Jesus approaches this really differently. Um, But I mean, if that happened to me, I would like, wow, he's asking me. I don't have to come to him. He's coming to me. How easy to walk a fellow like this, this rich young ruler, through a simple gospel tract and have him sign his name and, and say certain words, praying at, that I give him and then believing that, he tell him he's saved and that's it, you know? That would be so easy to do. I mean, this guy is religious. He's really religious and he's very successful in life. He was the kind of guy that would make any mother proud. He'd be a great guy to get into church, upright life, respectable, no baggage, uh, loaded with shekels. He could donate to the cause or whatever. But Jesus doesn't bring out a gospel tract. He doesn't say, believe in me. Uh, although sometimes he does say that. I mean, in John 6, 29, they said, what, what should we do that we may work the works of God? And what did Jesus say? Believe in him whom he has sent. That's what he said. That's the work of God. So sometimes he does give that answer. But he doesn't tell the rich man that. That's so interesting. So verse 16, one came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? It's the right question. But instead of giving him the the gospel tract or walking him through the sinner's prayer or anything like that, Jesus gets all caught up in the word good. In verse 17, he said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And Mark and Luke and their gospels add that Jesus also said on this occasion, no one is good except God alone, which is the implication of the words in Matthew. But he said that and Mark and Luke include that too. And Jesus says something that no evangelist ever that I've ever met would say to somebody like this guy, but if you wish to enter into life, Keep the commandments. Um, that's not what you're supposed to say. Jesus just got an F in evangelism. <laughs> he was kicked out of the class, um, drummed out of the core. His professor was spilled ink, red ink all over his paper. Um, how could you have said that, keep the commandments? I mean, that's, that's not it. That's works, you've just, you've just made this way too complicated why did you drag the 10 commandments into a gospel presentation? But I'm pretty sure Jesus knew what he was doing. I think he's sharper than we are. And he tends to deal with people as individuals and he's not so much into formulas and methods. So what's he doing with this guy? Now, I mean, isn't salvation a gift of grace alone? received by faith alone, isn't that what we believe? Absolutely, and that's so true. Uh, Titus chapter three, verse five through seven, it's really clear. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of? Eternal Eternal life, there it is. That's the answer to eternal life. You get it by the grace and the mercy of God through this new birth that the Holy Spirit brings. That is what we call clarity. That is clear. Couldn't be more clear than that. And Paul does that in Galatians and Ephesians and the book of Romans and that salvation does not come by our works of righteousness. But he does say that salvation comes by this working of the Holy Spirit and granting us this new birth, this washing, and that we are justified by God's grace. So... What is Jesus up to? What is he doing? Well, he's applying the truth to this individual situation with this particular kind of person. So he's not following a canned approach. He's speaking to this certain kind of guy. So let's let's kind of look at him a little bit. In verse twenty, it says um, he's young, and in verse twenty-two, it's clear that he's wealthy. So the nature of his question when he asked Jesus, what good things should I do to obtain eternal life? It it shows a genuine interest in spiritual things. In fact, he evidences a certain amount of humility. I mean, Mark says that he went to his knees when he said that. So he got on his knees before Jesus and is looking up and asking him this question. Which an evangelist would just love it if somebody did that. Just get on your knees and pleading for help. And okay, I'll, I'll tell you the truth and I think a conventional modern evangelist would have taken that guy on his knees led him through the proper prayer and he would have got baptized he would have joined a congregation he would have tithed from his vast fortune he would help out at church events and he would eventually die and find himself outside the kingdom of heaven because just doing certain things that what what good thing must I do and you say well this is the right thing to do is not what it's all about. And I'm not saying everybody who prays that prayer or signs a card or something isn't genuinely saved because people are saved that way, some of you were. But it's easy for that person to feel like that What they I did what was requested, that's what I'm supposed to do and now that's it. I'm saved, I can do whatever I want. It's just easy to do that and remain unconverted. And you know, the big organizations like the Billy Graham organization will tell you, all those people that come streaming down a very small percentage have actually come to Christ that in in an emotional moment and all of that 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 profess something. So there's just a percentage, and it's a pretty small percentage that actually come to Christ. So this rich young man, he's a good guy. What's his problem? He's shallow. That's his problem, he's shallow. He's unbelieving, and he really doesn't have a clue about God. He's very religious, but earthbound, and by that I mean his eyes are all down here. That's, what he, that's where he, his mind is. Jesus, Jesus doesn't have to be a mind reader, although he probably was, but he doesn't have to do that to see, see it in the guy's question. Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? So he believes he is good, and he just wants to make sure he's got all of his bases covered. So he's looking for another thing, that missing thing. Is there anything I'm missing to not have eternal life? Because I want to do that thing. You just let me know. So Jesus is going to deepen him, uh, and that's what his goal is here. So Jesus is basically saying, are you planning to be good, and thus earn God's approval? Because only God is good. That's why he tells him that. There's only one good being. You're not him. So he's trying to get him to think about himself in a different light. Only God is good. That needs to sink in a little bit, and that'll deepen this very shallow understanding he has. So he hasn't thought enough about God's holiness and his sinfulness, but Jesus is going to draw him out. So verse 17, so he says, but if you wish to enter life, keep the commandments. One thing people to know about God's nature is that he gives commandments. I mean, he has a moral expectation for every human being. And this man needs to know God. He needs to know who God is. He needs to know there's only one true God. Our brother here, Langkantong, knows that when you uh, evangelize animists or Hindus or things like that, it's easy for them to say, oh yeah, I'll add Jesus. So you got to make sure, right, that there's one true God, and that's who they're confessing when they get baptized and join the church because they can say, yeah, I'll get Jesus. You go visit them later, and they've got a Jesus across on the shelf with all their other gods, right, because they're happy to welcome other. Yeah, anything else that will help me out? Great, I'll add it. That's normal. So you've got to tell them who God is. There's only one God. He's the true God. If you don't do that, they really don't have the gospel, right? And if you don't tell people in our culture that God is holy, you, they don't know who the true God is. Because the average American does not think of God as holy at all. Never, that doesn't even enter their minds. If you could walk up to somebody, anybody you know, any friend, and say, who is God? What is he like? They're not going to go, holy! The average person is not going to say that. They're going to say, God is love, and he's sort of like a great-grandfather in the skies. He's a, he's a therapist for all of our needs, and... He's always there for us if we turn to Him. So our cultural God is a God of love, period. He's not holy, He makes no demands, only helpful suggestions. He really is a a therapist in our culture. He's not a consuming fire, which is how the New Testament describes Him. So God has to be given definition. People need to know that He's a being of infinite power an absolute holiness. He is the judge of the living and the dead. He is holy. Now, he's loving. God is love. That's from the Bible, but that's not all he is. He's holy, 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 the Bible says. So God is holy and loving. He's a judge and a father. He's an avenger and a redeemer. He's all of that. And our rich young friend here in today's text doesn't believe in God as he is. In Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah saw a vision of Christ and the angels were swirling around him singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, um, thrice holy, he was immediately, Isaiah was immediately consumed with his own sinfulness. As soon as he saw how holy God was, he says, I am a sinful man. He was like, oh, you know, I, I got a filthy mouth. He just instantly knew what his tongue was like. And this young ruler has to see that, too. He has to understand that about himself. And so do some of us in this room. We have to understand that. So Jesus, so far, is giving him two things to think about. Only God is good, and eternal life comes by keeping his commandments. Now, if you actually did keep his commandments, you would have eternal life. So there's not a false statement there. But... This guy doesn't keep the commandments. You don't keep the commandments, and I don't keep the commandments. That puts us in a bad situation if that's how you get eternal life, right? So put those two ideas together. All all he's given him so far, only God is good. You can have eternal life by keeping his commandments. What's the logical conclusion of those two things? Only God is good, not me. Eternal life comes by keeping commandments. I don't keep them. I'm in trouble. That's, that's what Jesus wants this man to start thinking about. And this shouldn't be news to a Jew that, oh, I'm a lost sinner. I mean, Psalm 14, and which was repeated later in the book of Psalms, it set out, says very clearly, there's no one who does good, there's not even one. God looks down from heaven among the sons of men to see if there's anybody who's righteous, anybody that understands, there's not one, not even one. That's what the Bible says. That's what his Old Testament said. He should have known it. So the problem with our young man is that he's not he's not seeking God, he's seeking peace of mind for himself. He just wants to make sure he's okay. So Jesus introduces him to a God who is holy. Only God is good. Only God is good. And if you want to be accepted by him, keep his commandments. So the man who still doesn't get it asks in verse 18, which ones? Keep the commandments. Which ones? Talk about shallow. So Jesus says, okay, back to kindergarten. He doesn't say that literally, but he starts with the Ten Commandments. Jesus said... You shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now notice he doesn't mention all of the 10. He goes to what are what's commonly called the second table of the law. You know how there's two tablets and the big 10 is usually divided into two groups. The first table, the first commandments represent how we relate to God, right? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven images. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Those are the first four commandments and those are all upward, our relationship to God. So the first table confronts us with the need, the requirement, the commandment to honor God above all things. The second table relates to how we treat each other. And if you're talking to somebody in really simple terms, since they don't care about God being holy and deserving all glory and honor and all of that, you can talk to them about this human level of interaction. That's what Jesus does with this guy. There's six commandments there and Jesus mentions five and then he adds on a a verse he pulls out of Deuteronomy to kind of uh, summarize the commandments. So he says, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The last one isn't one of the 10, it's a summary of the the 10 commandments. So interestingly, the commandment against coveting is the last one, and that's the one he doesn't mention. So let's kind of follow this conversation again. Jesus takes us from God's absolute unique goodness to God's law. Now why do that? Well, Galatians 2.16 says, by the words of the law shall no flesh be justified. Because if you really measure yourself by God's law, you come up short. Why bring up the law? Romans 3.23, by the law comes the knowledge of sin. If you don't have the law, you're pretty content with doing good. But if you actually measure yourself by God's law, you fall very short, right? So Jesus wants him to see himself and be broken by what he sees, by his sin, his moral failure. So he's holding up the mirror of God's law and saying, look at yourself here. And in that, we see all of our weakness and all of our failure. So how does our friend here respond? Verse 20, I've kept all those. I've kept those. I'm good. So obviously, he wasn't there for the Sermon on the Mount. So... Um, remember when we were in the Sermon on the Mount a year ago or something he didn't hear how anger is actually murder of the heart you know, and that lust is actually adultery of the heart he didn't hear all of that so he believes himself quite in- innocent here and I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure he didn't really think for even a minute about you shall love your neighbor as yourself I don't know anybody that says oh I love my neighbor as myself that's me that's describing me I don't know anybody that, that <clears throat> claims that but, so he isn't even probably thinking about that just kinda of let it pass by. But he's focused on the specific ones. You know, I, I respect my parents, and I uh, haven't killed anybody, and I, I don't sleep around, and I, I don't cheat, so he, I'm a nice guy. Any Sunday school would be proud to graduate this young man. Give him a bar and everything. <clears throat> so he's the guy that parents hope their children will turn out to be. He's a good citizen, a good fellow. But he's not saved. He wants eternal life, he says, and he doesn't have it. And he is as much a man of the flesh and devoid of righteousness as the immoral man or the thief or the murderer. He has no concept of God's nature, so he has no concept of his own sinfulness. I got a call yesterday from um, my best friend growing up in in high school, and we we talk every year or so. And he called me, I had a good conversation. But he was kind of like this young man um, when I was growing up in, in certain key ways. And he was unlike him in a really important way. So like me, Scott, my friend Scott became a Christian when he, when he was in college. And before that, in our high school days, he was the, by far, in terms of anybody I knew, the most upright, the most moral, and the most honest person that I knew. Um, Just a remarkable person. He was a really good athlete and he was such a good person, he won the Fellowship of Christian Athletes Award in our high school because of his exemplary behavior on the field and off the field. And uh, I thought it was pretty funny at the time because Scott was not a Christian at all. Um, His parents were diehard atheists and at most he would say, I don't know, I'm an agnostic. I don't really know anything about all that. So he wasn't a Christian and the Christians were honoring him for his wonderful behavior. So after I became a Christian, I was sharing the gospel with him, and I asked him if it was difficult for him to think of himself as a sinner. This is how he's totally different than the fine young man we're talking about here. I said, was it hard for you to think of yourself as a sinner? He goes, no, no, I am a sinner. I mean, he had these standards, but he couldn't live his standards. Just like me, I, I totally related to him because I had my own standards. I didn't live by God's standards, but I had my, and I wasn't living my own standards. So I knew I was a sinner. He knew he was a sinner. And so eventually he came to Christ. We didn't need convincing that we were sinners, but this guy needs convincing. He has no sense of his sin at all. Commandments, I've kept them. Yep, they almost describe me. In fact, when you look up the Ten Commandments, there's a picture of me in the Bible. That's kind (laughs) of where he was, you know? People esteemed him for his goodness, and he believed them. And he's been so comfortable with the praise of men, he believes himself to be virtuous. That is just shallow. He doesn't think deeply at all about anything. He takes a very shallow view of the law. I've kept all these from my youth. And he says to Jesus, what am I still lacking? I've kept all those. Is there anything else? So now Jesus is going to apply the one commandment he didn't mention in the second table. You shall not covet. He doesn't mention it. He's going to apply it because it's way more effective to apply it. Because if he said, he said, what, what about coveting? You shall not covet. The, the man was. I don't covet. That's what he would have said. So Jesus has to show him his own sinfulness. So this is how he applies it. What am I still lacking? Verse 21. Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Follow me. Join my band. Let everything go. What good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? Here's a good thing. Sell all your stuff and trust in your heavenly treasure and follow me. How about that? He could have explained, like he did in the Sermon on the Mount, that don't murder means don't hate and don't commit adultery also means don't lust. But he focuses on his real problem, which is covetousness. The Messiah is asking him to set aside his goods for the kingdom of God. Those goods, everything you have, they're not yours anymore. They belong to the poor now. And I want you to serve with me. You come with me. And suddenly his heart said, no no I'm not doing that I'm not doing that because he loved his stuff and he wasn't about to give that up couldn't do it those things were more precious to him than God more precious to him than the kingdom of God and Jesus leaves him no room no room for self-justification or rationalizing you've got to give it all up and follow me and he would not do it he wouldn't do it verse 22 but when the young man heard this statement he went away grieving for he owned much property he was so vested in this world he couldn't let it go and Jesus does not run after him and shout, oh, I'm sorry, it was only a test. I was just, I would just really want, it was kind of a general statement of support. I, I didn't mean he had to give up everything. I, don't take it so seriously. I did I was he doesn't do that. He lets him go. Salvation involves repentance and faith. Repentance is renouncing and turning to Jesus. So we might say it's forsaking and following because to follow him, you have to forsake some things. There's no salvation without repentance and without understanding and being broken over sin, you can't repent. So this young man does not have saving faith because he doesn't have real repentance. He's actually an idolater. He worships all the stuff he has. That's the most important thing in his life. And it's just now being revealed to him for the very first time. And he can't, can't give it up. Yeah, but aren't we saved by faith? Absolutely we are. Absolutely we are. Salvation is by faith, but it's not faith in anything. There's an object of our faith that saves us. The object of faith is Jesus as Savior and King, Redeemer and Lord. That's the object of our faith. That's what we're putting our faith in. You can't particularize faith in a way like... Um, I believe in a sort of Jesus or I believe in a something like Jesus character and I'm going to name him Jesus but he's not all that he is in here. That's not putting your faith in Jesus. It's a made up Jesus. You see the difference? Faith has to be in the real Jesus and faith in Jesus can really be reduced to these two words, follow me. If he's your great savior from sin and if he's your king sitting on an eternal throne, you can't say, I believe that, I just don't want to follow. You can't can't do that. That's not faith. Faith is trusting a person, and if you don't trust him enough to follow him, you don't trust him at all. You don't have faith. That's what faith is. Faith is the desire to follow Jesus, but because faith isn't just believing certain facts are true, oh, I think he is the Messiah. It's got to be he's my Messiah. He's not just a savior, he's my savior. He's not just the Lord, the king, he's my Lord, he's my king. That's what faith is. That's what it means to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Confessing with a true heart, this is my Lord. It's not very often a person asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But when they do ask, you can say, believe in Jesus, that's true. And you can say, follow Jesus, that's true, that's true too because they're the same thing, they're the same thing. Don't tiptoe around his lordship though, that he's the king to be obeyed and followed. You should make sure that's part of explaining who he is. And you can't blow it, this is the thing people think, oh, if I talk about following him as lord, they'll, they'll get skittish and, and not accept him as savior. Hey, they're not accepting him as savior anyway if they don't acknowledge his lordship. So make that part of the, the talk. Jesus just tells this guy the truth. He doesn't manipulate him, he doesn't have a secret agenda. He's just telling him straight out what it is. How easy it would be to make this man a superficial disciple, to get him to sign on the line. How about every other weekend? Would you follow me every other weekend? Keep your stuff, yeah, I can do that. I'm a believer. But that would never have addressed his sin. He would not have repented. Mark um, 10, 21 tells us that Jesus loved the man. He just had a natural draw to him. He cared about him. But that only gave Jesus more of a willingness to tell him the truth. It didn't give him a willingness to compromise the truth, it gave him a stronger sense of really bringing it to him. And the man turns away, and Jesus doesn't say, Oh, he doesn't turn to Peter and say, Man, Pete, I blew that one. He walked away. I shouldn't have talked about his wealth. It was too early, too early. Shouldn't have brought that up. Should have let that one go. Brought it up later. He wasn't ready. He doesn't talk like that. Jesus grieves the lost condition of the man's heart, not how he treated him. And he draws a conclusion, verse 23. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which is impossible, than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The rich have so many distractions, so much to keep Christ out of the affections of the heart, and in fact, humanly speaking, it is impossible for them to believe. And maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, if it's so rigorous, if Jesus is probing for faith so deeply, what about me? Well, that's exactly what the disciples want to know. Verse 25: when the disciples heard this, they were astonished. And they said, well, then who can be saved? If it's like this, who can be saved? If sin holds such sway over the hearts of men, if, as like Luther said, if our will is in bondage to sin, if we are so bent away from God, even when we're very religious, what then? Well, verse 26, looking at them, Jesus said, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God does save rich men. God saves all kinds of people. Have you ever heard that statement before? With God, all things are possible. People use it about climbing a mountain or winning a, a, a game, you know, or something like that. With God, all things are possible. I can run this marathon. He's talking about salvation. That's where those words come from. With God, all things are possible. God can soften a hard heart. God can breathe life into a corpse. God can break the bondage of the will. God can make himself look glorious to people like you and I so that we follow him. He can do that. Remember Lydia? She was the first person to believe the gospel in Philippi. She was a seller of purple fabrics, which meant she was a businesswoman who was very wealthy because th- that stuff cost a lot. A purple shirt like you got on, Sam, that cost a fortune in those days. It's really hard to get purple dye she was a businesswoman, and it says in Acts chapter 16 verse 14 it says uh, Paul and the missionaries were sharing Christ down by the river and a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira a seller of purple fabrics a worshiper of God she went to a synagogue but she was a Gentile and listening she was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul how did she come to believe the Lord opened her heart it was a miracle He made her see it's true. She really believed it. Is there hope for me? Yeah, by God's grace and power, he can open our hearts. What our our sinful nature, our earthbound hearts make impossible, the gracious spirit of God can make possible, opening our minds, raising our eyes up to heavenly things, softening our hard hearts. It's possible with God for a heart to change. It's possible that we can come to see how empty and shallow our life is without him, how tawdry and empty sin is, and to see the beauty of holiness and the truth, especially about Jesus Christ, this most amazing person that ever lived. And when a person develops an interest in Jesus and hears about him and how he was God become man and a king who gave himself for his rebellious people, a savior who kept the commandments for us, And then went to the cross carrying our sin on himself and giving us his righteousness so that we can be right with God through him. That's just the most amazing truth anybody's ever thought about, ever. Exchanging his perfect life for our sin, bearing our punishment. And when somebody hears that and and they want him Even even if it means forsaking things that they once clung to so tenaciously, well, that's just God doing a miracle. God is opening a heart. He did that to me. It's the greatest of miracles. Nothing is impossible with God, not with the most vile sinner and not with the good man who just needs to know the next thing he's supposed to do. God can open both of those kind of people's hearts. The good man needs to be aware of his spiritual poverty and the vile sinner needs to know there's a gracious God who loves him and paid for those sins more than he could imagine. He's an all-sufficient Savior. So God,